Good morning. What an amazing Sunday to come back and preach. Uh, what a privilege. It's a blessing. I hope you're touched. I hope you, um, your heart has been elevated and lifted uh, to see the miracles happening among us. Amen. Uh, you can open your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 9. We're closing our series called Choosing Wisely or Choose Wisely. This is a series looking at the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, I've had so many people ask me, hey, how was your trip? I want to hear about it. What did God teach you? What did you, know, what did you come away with? That message is next week. We're going to take just a one-off. I'm going to share a message called From My Heart to Yours. I'm going to talk about uh, what I learned in the trip, what I believe God's calling us to, uh, some things in my life that God wanted to, to grab my attention and, and, and teach me, and I, hopefully uh, to teach you as well. So come back, uh, hear all that next week. But again, we're going to be finishing our series here in the Kings. Again, can we just thank the pastors over the summer who just led so well? Thank you, guys. Oh, yeah, I should probably mention if you're newer here, maybe this is your first week uh, back or you're here in the summer. Hi, I'm the lead pastor. Nice to meet you. I'm Nate. Uh, I've been on sabbatical for eight weeks, and so uh, it's so good to be back with you. Uh, let me just say one other word before we pray, uh, just to let you know, remind you about the, the letter that Pastor Todd sent out several weeks ago. Uh, we're landing our fiscal year-end budget. Uh, we're landing that at the end of this month. So this is really the final week before we finish that year. We consider uh, our budget and making that budget, ending the year in the black, a spiritual matter. It is, uh, we believe it's from the Lord. God is looking to show himself faithful. He's looking for our generosity. And anything that goes above and beyond our year-end budget uh, will go toward our uh, campus improvement improvement plan and all the dreams that we have to make this an even more hospitable place, a place for this current and future generations to come. So we're looking like we're in a good place. Continue your generosity as we close out the giving year. Let me say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to hear the lives of young people and parents and those that we heard through the, the waters of baptism. Their lives are preaching the gospel. Their lives are speaking a sermon for us today. What a joy. Lord, continue to encourage them. We pray for our, our year-end giving, Lord. We trust the, the saying that God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. We trust, Lord, that as we seek you, not the things of man, but we seek the things of God. We are about the work of the gospel, caring for people discipling people, to show them who Christ is, Lord, that you will provide. So continue to provide. Uh, we pray for the generosity of our people to continue and for your work to be done here in our area. We also want to say a word of prayer for all the, the teachers and the students headed back to school, many of them going back this week or maybe just begun. Lord, in the school years, all the temptations, the challenges that come their way, both the good and the bad and the ugly, Lord, that can happen. Lord, we pray that you would be preeminent in their lives. They would seek you to find truth, to, um, uh, to, to find uh, uh, solutions to their biggest problems that they face, Lord. Uh, bring them a new, maybe new students that are transitioning to a new school or a new grade. Bring them friends and a community and, and helping hands, Lord, that they would thrive not only educationally, but spiritually as well. 
Lord, as we open up your word here this morning, teach us. Lord, transform us because we sat under the teaching of your word. Use the Holy Spirit's power to speak only your words that you would want me to speak here today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, how many of you uh, uh, kids, students out there play sports? Okay, raise your hand. How many, uh, how many of the rest of you have played sports at some point in your life? Okay, many of you. How many of you ever watch kids play sports? Okay, this is almost everybody at this point. Have you at some point seen a, a, a poor little boy or a girl make the mistake of getting disoriented where they are on the field or the court and start running into their own end zone to score a touchdown or score a basket for the wrong team? Have any of you ever seen that happen? Some of you. Have any of you ever done that? Raise your hand. Okay, a few, <laughs> a few of you, God bless you for your honesty. How many of any of you parents had your children do that? And you're like, oh my goodness. Okay, a few of you. So you know that experience is really quite an awkward experience when that moment, that moment happens. We all kind of laugh it off. But for that child, in the moment, they think this is the greatest thing in the world. I got the ball. No one seems to be tackling me, and I see the end zone. I see the basket, and they are all excited. This is my moment to shine. We're, of course, all the parents saying, no, no, wrong way. They hear, go, go, all the way. And they score the touchdown. They score the basket, and they're all excited until, of course, that moment they realize, oh, no, it was the wrong team. You can imagine the embarrassment. You could, you could say that that child was not lacking in their zeal, right? They had a lot of zeal. They really wanted to score. We might say the problem wasn't the zeal. The problem was the zeal was, maybe we say misguided, misdirected, disoriented. Yeah. Well, the king that we are going to discover, talk about today, is really a king that had a problem with his zeal. See, the zeal wasn't necessarily the problem. He had lots of zeal. In fact, he had more zeal than he needed in some ways, we might say. His problem wasn't the zeal. The problem was that it was misguided. And maybe even misguided isn't quite the right term. We are going to uncover the problem with his zeal as we go along in this story. Of course, we're talking about King Jehu. And in looking at King Jehu and the issues with his zeal, we're going to see three things. We're going to see God's zeal and why we can take comfort in God's zeal. We're going to see the the problems with Jehu's zeal and inevitably ours, what's missing in our zeal. And then we're going to look to the solution, where to find it, where to find a solution to our deepest need. So, Story of Jehu, 2 Kings 9 and 10, we're going to be looking at. Let me warn you, this is an incredibly violent two chapters. Very violent. You probably have had small kids, and this was made into Jehu's uh, story was made into a movie. You probably wouldn't let them watch it, but it is here in Scripture, and at times it is disturbing, and the author does not sugarcoat any of it. It is meant to confront us, okay? See, we read the Bible, but know that the Bible reads you, all right? It's alive and active. So keep that in mind 
as we're going through this story. The story takes place within the larger narrative of the prophet Elisha in the northern kingdom, in the days of the divided kingdom. This is probably around 842 BC. And at this point in the ministry of Elijah, things have really become dark in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, under the, the kingship of um, King Ahab, some of you might know that name, and his uh, wife, the queen, anybody know her name? Jezebel, that's right. Jezebel and their lineage, things had become incredibly dark. The reigns were marked by unmitigated idolatry, uh, worship of Baal, including all kinds of heinous, grotesque uh, sex acts, as well as the practice of child sacrifice and injustice to the poor and the powerless. I mean, things were bad. And if you were a poor person living in that kingdom in that day, if you were trying to live a righteous life in that day, you might be saying, God, do you not care? God, are you asleep? How can you let this keep happening for decades? And maybe you'd be justified in wondering that, of course, until you get to chapter 9. The chapter abruptly opens when Elisha sends a young prophet, a prophet in training, with a message from God to a general of the Israel army named Jehu. And there's no time to waste, and so this prophet, he was quick to find Jehu, he delivers this message, and he runs out as fast as possible, and here's the message that he gives. You can pick it up in verse 6. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. And you are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all of the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. And the whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will cut down from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel... Dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Mic drop, he's out of there. He runs. The message could not be any clearer about God's mission. We might say, number one, Jehu was, it was prophesied that Jehu would lead a coup against Ahab and his royal line, and he will become king. And secondly, that God is going to use Jehu uh, as a jealous avenger against evil, okay? This is the marching orders, this is the prophecy, and with Jehu and his army behind him, he wastes no time. In his zeal, he immediately begins his mission. And we're gonna follow Jehu through four bloody acts of vengeance, okay? Uh, this is like a, a Rambo movie, or a John Wick movie, uh, what we're about to find here. So we're going we're gonna to do a brief flyby in chapters 9 and 10 of looking at these acts. So act number one is vengeance against King Joram. Starting in verse 14, we see the story. Jehu and his army, they take off with great haste towards King Joram in Jezreel. Now from his tower, King Joram is looking out. He says, wow, that's a big dust cloud. These chariots are really moving fast. I wonder if they're just really looking forward to seeing me or if there's a problem at hand. And he's not quite sure. He's not the smartest king 
uh, in Israel. You know, sin will make you stupid. So anyway, King Jerom, King Jerom is looking out and he sends messengers his way. Go, messengers, go and find out whether or not this is good news or bad news. Well, he sends two messengers out and neither of them return. And so he says, you know what, I think I'll go out. Bad move. He goes out, he meets uh, Jehu and his army, and uh, at verse four, uh, 21, it says, they meet him at the plot of ground that belongs to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, this becomes important. Put a pin in that. This name, this location becomes important in the story in just a moment. We'll see. Verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as the idolatry and the witchcraft of your mother Jezebel is around? Uh-oh. Verse 24, then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot dead. Verse 25, Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Here it comes again. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him? Yesterday, I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declared the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. You say, what in the world is going on here with this reference to Naboth and the significance of this particular plot of land? Well, let me tell you, in 1 Kings 21, we read about a man named Naboth. He's a godly man. He's a peaceful man. He and his family own a vineyard, and they're literally minding their own business. I mean, they're not picking a fight with anyone. They're just doing what you do when you own a vineyard, right? Plucking grapes, whatever you do, right? Make wine. He's doing his thing out there, and King Ahab and Jezebel decide, they plot that they're going to steal this man's land. And so they make up these really bad rumors about him in the community. They slander him in front of the community. And they drag this man and his family out in front of the whole community, and the community stones him to death, kills the family off. And Jezebel and Ahab annex his land for themselves. And they, nobody knows the real story, or at least they think so. By the way, it's very interesting, here we are thousands of years later, and powerful uh, people, politicians and others, are doing the very same kinds of things, following the same playbook as Jezebel today. So, they think they got away with it. This is, they're probably laughing about this at dinner together, you know, Ahab and, Je- and Jezebel and Joram, <laughs> that idiot, you know, Naboth, he never saw it coming. No one even knows what we did. Aren't we so smart? Until, of course, they realize that God sees everything. And no one is getting away with anything. And King Joram, to his dread, realizes that the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the innocent, is speaking from the ground. And his day will come in the very same field where Naboth was killed. That's act one. Act two. Vengeance against Queen Jezebel starts in verse 30. Now, even if you've never read the Bible, you probably know the name Jezebel. And when you hear the name Jezebel, you know, ooh, that, that, name, that name has like, there's something going on with that name. That's, that's become like a byword, right? We think, when we think of Jezebel, what do we think of? We think of somebody who's 
maybe uses seduction in the wrong kind of ways or they're scheming or lying. You know, this is an evil woman, as the song goes. Um, and the reason that you know that is because this is the original Jezebel, right? This is the one that ruined the name for every other woman ever in history because she was indeed an evil woman. And she had it coming to her. Verse 30, then Jehu went to Jezreel, and when Jezebel heard about it, she put on her makeup, she arranged her hair. I'll avoid so much commentary I would make on this passage here. She put on her eye makeup, arranged her hair, and she looked out the window, basically getting dressed for her own funeral. Let's put it that way. That's what's going on here. And as Jehu entered the gate, she asked, have you come in peace, you Zimri, which was a kind of a slanderous word, you murderer of my master. She's basically provoking a fight with him. Jehu doesn't even acknowledge her. Verse 32, he looked up at the window and he called out, who's on my side, who? And two or three eunuchs looked down and they're like, we're on your side, <laughs> okay? These are men who had been castrated, by the way, uh, in service to the queen. And these men were, uh, must have at some point been saying, man, one of these days she is gonna get it. I just can't wait until somebody puts her in her place, somebody gives justice, and now their opportunity comes. So they poke out their head and they're like, hey, we're with you, right? And Jehu says, throw her down. And so these eunuchs pick her up and throw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. I'm, I'm just reading the story. It's right here. It's not my words. It's the Bible's words. And just as predicted, the prophecy at Jehu's anointing that we come to find the dogs come and they devour her body and nothing is left but a few bones. And just like that, Jezebel's 30-year reign of terror comes to a violent, disgraceful end. That's act two. Everybody, how's your stomach feeling at this point? Everybody good? We're still good? Okay, we got a couple more acts here. Act number three, vengeance against Ahab's royal line. We're now in chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. I will save you the whole narrative. Uh, and you might say, Nate, I can, I can kind of guess what's going to happen, right? Heads are going to roll. And I'd say, yes. And in fact, not only are your head's going to roll figuratively, they're going to happen literally. And that's exactly what happens. Jehu hunts down the entire line of Ahab and all who are loyal to him, slaughters all of them, cuts off their heads, and stacks them at the city gate for all to see. One, to say there's a new sheriff in town. But two, to say nobody's getting away with anything. God's justice is now served. Act four, here we go. Vengeance against the priests of Baal. We see this verse 18 to 28. Jehu, at this point, he secured his kingship. He eradicated the house of Ahab, but he's not finished because while he has destroyed the line of Ahab and they're a judge, the idolatrous religion of Jezebel is still very much alive and well, still thriving there in uh, in Israel. And so King Jehu, in a way that would make Machiavelli proud, he throws this huge party in the temple of Baal in, in Samaria, and he pretends to be the biggest fanboy of Baal you've ever seen. 
I mean, he is so thrilled to have all these priests, all these leaders of the Baal religion to come and throw a huge party for them. I mean, all the drinks you can imagine, all the festivities, all the food, all the, you know, sexual promiscuity you could want in this place, and he throws this huge party for them. And while they're in the midst of feasting and drinking and laughing and dancing and taking selfies and posting them on Instagram and everything else, in that moment, he calls 80 assassins to come and strike down every single one of those cult leaders. We pick it up in verse 25, the guards and officers threw the bodies out and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and they burned it. And they demolished the sacred stone of Baal and they tore down the temple of Baal and the people had used it. (laughs) This is funny. You can't make this up. It's in the Bible. The people used it for a latrine to this very day. They took the most sacred stone of Baal and they relieved themselves on it. They turned it into a public bathroom. That's what the Bible says, which made me think, I wonder if that's the origin story of those Calvin stickers that people put on their bumpers. You know the ones that have like the Eagles fan, like the boy like peeing on the Dallas Cowboy helmet. You know which ones? I was going to put it up here and I thought that's probably too, nobody needs to see that. Anyway, I digress. I don't advocate those by the way, just to make that very clear. You say, Nate, what in the world can we possibly learn from this sermon? I mean, I could probably just as, learn just as much from watching Rambo, you know, movies or John Wick 4 or whatever. I mean, it's basically the same story. What in the world? Why is this in the Bible? What is in here for me? I want to share with you three things. One, surprisingly, maybe it's not seen at first, but there's something that we can learn. There's something comforting about God's zeal that we find here in the text. Throughout this series, we've been assessing, haven't we? We've been assessing King Jehu. Is he good? Is he bad? What do you guys think? Is he good? Is he bad? Somewhere in between? It's kind of hard to say anybody's good when they're like this violent, right? It's, it's, especially in our sensibilities, it's wrong, doesn't it? Is that he gives him an assessment. And listen to God's assessment. Verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing the right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the In no uncertain terms, God says to Jehu, essentially the words of you're a believer that we long to hear one day, essentially, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he says to him. Now, from a modern viewpoint, that might be a little bit unsettling about God. Maybe it confirms some of your suspicions. You know, God is, a, is an angry tyrant, violent. He's a warmonger. What do you think? While this passage might be a little unsettling in its violence, think about it a little bit deeper. I hope it's also comforting that we worship a God who is not impotent. We worship a powerful omnipotent God who is not afraid of the kings of the world, of those in power, those in authority. He's not afraid of them. He's a powerful God who can act in history and ultimately act in the end of days. He is an omnipotent God, but he's also not only omnipotent, 
Because it might be scary to know a God is omnipotent without knowing that he's not ambivalent. See, he's powerful, and he's not just sitting back uncaring, untouched about the word world. This is a God who cares, a God who is zealous about injustice. This is a God who's zealous against evil. This is a God who gets angry when under the abuse of power and violence. This is a God who comes to judge justly. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord will go out like a mighty man. He will stir up zeal like a man of war. He will raise a war cry. Yes, he will shout aloud. He will triumph over his enemy. God is a warrior. God is a warrior. And God's zeal against evil is sure. I want to live, I don't know about you, but I want to live in a world where that is true. Don't you? I mean, unless you're living in Barbie land somewhere. But otherwise, I want to live in a world where that's true because that means that no one's getting away with anything. It means that Putin's unjustified war and his propaganda that he uses to blind his own people, God sees and his zeal against evil is sure. You can bank on it. It means that the sex trafficking and the human slavery happening in our world and even in our own country, in dark corners among the powerful and the wealthy who think that nobody sees, friends, God sees and his zeal against evil is sure. It means that those who are taking advantage of poor and under-resourced communities with things like payday loans and other kind of financial schemes. It means that those who are causing children and teens to stumble. Things like in today's world, twisted gender ideologies or gender-affirming therapists recommending cross-hormone therapy putting some on a conveyor belt that ends in uh, mutilation of parts irreparably, making millions off of it. Friends, this and everything else that we might say is unjust and evil, God sees and his zeal is sure. See, we may escape the judgment of men, but we cannot escape the judgment of God. And if not here, then certainly in the hereafter. You read the book of Revelation, every sin not repented of and covered by the blood of Jesus will meet the zealous justice of God in the end of days. And so friends, when you encounter injustice today, when you encounter evil and violence in the world that makes your stomach turn, that makes you cry out, God, where are you? Do you even care? Do you care what I'm going through? Do you care what my family's going through? Do you care what our communities and our world is going through? Friends, take cover, uh, 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 comfort, find your footing in the omnipotent zeal of the Lord find it. That's the first thing that we can see. The second thing is really more directed at us. From this passage, we learn that there's something missing in Jehu's zeal, and in many ways, admittedly, can be missing in our zeal. And let me start by saying that there's a lot to commend in Jehu's zeal, isn't there? I mean, it is men and women of righteous zeal 
that have fought back against evil in our world, who have brought reforms and uh, cultivation of a thriving world. King David facing down giants. The Apostle Paul, uh, Paul bringing the gospel to the Gentiles despite the persecution. Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India, willing to risk her own life to save those in the Indian communities. Corey Ten Boom facing down the Nazis. William Wilberforce uh, facing down um, the courts of England to stop the slave trade. MLK Jr., I mean, the list goes on and on. Give me 10 men or women, uh, a Christian uh, who, who are zeal, who want to change the world. I'll take that over 1,000, 10,000, uh, you know, sitting on their hands, Christians, just kind of ho-hum, not caring or ambivalent about the world. And that's a, a sermon for another day. But let me just say here, that there's a warning in Jehu's zeal for us today because his assessment isn't over. Look at verse 28. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan, and God judged him for this. You say, wait, 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 wait. What are you talking about? You mean the same guy that was so jealous to kill all of this worship of Baal and all the idolatry happening is the same one that turns a blind eye and in fact kind of justifies other idol worship? How is that even possible? The reason is because of the difference between what I'll call imported idolatry and homegrown idolatry. The idolatry of Baal was a foreign invasion of ideologies. It was a foreign invasion of cultures and practices that was brought on by Jezebel and others like her. It was an imported idolatry into the community. However, the worship of the golden calves, oh, that was good old homegrown Israel idolatry. It was started by their own kings. It came from their own culture. It was embedded in the fiber of the community. Homegrown idolatry. It was part of who they were. It was part of their man-made religious system. It was like their own man-made religion mixed in with the true religion of their faith. Do you see that? Both were evil, both broke the first command, both broke the heart of God, but Jehu tolerated the homegrown idolatry, in fact, participated in it, and yet he hated the imported idolatry. 2 Kings 10.31 says, Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his, what? His heart. And that's where it is. What's missing from Jehu's zeal? It was love for God, love for God with his whole heart above these other competing loyalties and rivalries. Do you see that? Oh, he loved his country. He loved justice. He loved his morality, but he lacked a love for God. And when we do that, it is inevitable, friends, when God is not first, something else, some other rival idolatry, whether it's politics or it's morality, or it's our own jobs, or it's our looks, or it's our money, or whatever it is will indeed take the place. It's some homegrown idolatry of the heart. Friends, there is something in here for us, isn't there? 
if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we prone to the same tendencies? Aren't we prone to be zealous about certain cultural or moral or political issues today and yet just as tempted towards turning a blind eye to other things that are more homegrown in our heart? Let me just share like maybe one or two non-controversial <laughs> examples. Maybe you're zealous about, you say, man, I'm zealous about, you know, fighting the LGBT plus idolatry and the, the ideology of our world today. You know, I'm going to protest. I'm going to take to Instagram and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, fine. And yet, are you committing heterosexual sin? Sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Do you have a pornography addiction? Are you in an inappropriate relationship with someone at work? Are you using your power in some way that is taking advantage of someone else? Or maybe you say, man, I'm zealous against abortion and supporting pro-life movements and programs. Yes, good, okay. And yet, are you completely blind to the idol of greed, the homegrown American virtue in many ways? Amassing more and more possessions, obsessed with your bottom line, seeking security in your wealth and your power and your prestige, very little concern for the poor. Or maybe you're zealous about racial equality and providing opportunities for disadvantaged people in your community, and yet you're alienating people in your own family. Or you stop talking to people at church who don't agree with you. Or you stop forgiving people and you're angry. Friends, I find the same temptation in my heart. I'm not sharing with you anything that I don't struggle with myself to find a rival idol in my heart, to be intolerant of certain sins in my, in my life and on other people, and yet tolerant of others. Intolerant here, tolerant in another place. We might have to ask ourselves, am I passionate about this because of my love for God, or am I passionate about this because of my love for my political party? or because of my love for my culture, because of my love for myself. Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Revelation 2, uh, God gives us the antidote to this. When he commends, God commends the church in Ephesus on their zeal for truth, remember that? Man, you guys love your truth. You hold firm to the truth, but this I have you against you. He says, verse four, you have forsaken your first love, your love that you had at first. Consider how you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Repent. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about being bold enough to pray this prayer. I'll put it on the screen. Lord, in my zeal, am I tolerating a sin? Do I have a homegrown idol in my heart that you want me to repent of in order to make you first in my life? Would you be so bold to pray that prayer? Whatever God reveals in there that you'd be willing to repent of it and seek him for it. I know we're in overtime. I knew I was gonna have way too much to say today when I came back, but we're in overtime. Let me just say, let me say this briefly in closing. You and I are all Jehu. We're all Jehu. We all have divided hearts. We all have rivals. We all have evil 
that dwells in the human heart. The same line of evil and good runs down the center of every human heart. So you say, well, what's the solution to that? Well, God could do one of two things. God could either say, you know what I'm going to do to the evil? I'm going to wipe you out. And that would be just. He'd be just to wipe us out because of our own sin that dwells in our heart. Just like he wiped out all those people that we just read about. God would be just. But you'd say, well, that might be just, but man, that seems intolerant. That seems unloving. What other option is there? Okay, you say, well, God, God could just kind of turn a blind eye. Act like it doesn't exist. You know what? I don't see it. It's fine. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. Let's sing Kumbaya. The problem, of course, with that is, without justice, you know what would happen in this world? It would turn into like that Purge movie series really quickly. I haven't seen it, but I understand the idea. It would devolve into chaos really quickly. You say, that might sound really tolerant, but it's not loving. So what is the solution? Friends, here's the solution. God provided a better and a final king, didn't he? A king who had perfect zeal for God's justice and kept the law of God with all of his heart and was simultaneously perfect in his love with mercy and grace in his wings to save sinners like us. Of course, we know the king, the better and the true king, is King Jesus. He's a perfect embodiment of both justice and love. In one location in the universe does God's zeal for justice and his love flow together toward us, and that location is the cross of Christ. It's the only place where Jesus, we see the zeal of God against evil. It is dealt with there, justice is served, and he does it out of love for all of us, where he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and offers forgiveness once and all it is finished on the cross. You are forgiven and set free. What side of the cross are you standing? Are you standing under the blood of Jesus or are you standing in judgment of it? Stand under it and receive the full forgiveness of God, his justice and his love toward you. I want to give you an opportunity. I want to invite the band back up. We'll just do one more song together. And I want to give you an opportunity to pray together. You can pray where you're standing, but I want to encourage you to come down front. We'll have our prayer team down front during the song. So if you're a prayer team member, come on down front. Just stand down here. And during the song, would you be so bold to come down and ask for prayer? Maybe it's something the Lord revealed to you. Maybe you want to pray for the first time to accept that blood of Jesus and be forgiven and not under God's judgment. I'm going to come down personally because there's some areas of my life I'm going to ask somebody to pray for. And I want you to consider doing the same thing.